0: You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 3. This episode, I'm talking with Roshan Patel, Roshan is a student at the Montana State University studying science and natural history filmmaking. He's also co-founder of Nestbox Collective, which he says is a collaborative space for him and his colleague Madison McClintock to share stories about the curious ways that people connect with their environments. He has produced and worked on a variety of films that range from subjects including lions in Western India to printing 3D guns and the social implications of that technology. In the past, he has built websites, photographed research projects for science publications, written multimedia-rich performance art pieces, produced a film festival, created field guides for the Chesapeake Bay, and contributed to research with ospreys, amphibians, and elephants. One might ask how these seemingly random collection of experiences connect. Well, the answer is simple. Like a nest box, each tells the story of the relationship people create with their surroundings. Whether it be building a birdhouse, understanding how we depend on bees, or fighting for a healthier ecosystem. Recently, Roshan produced Red Wolf Revival, a film about the last remaining wild population of red wolves. Centered on the historic recovery effort in eastern North Carolina, he documented the multifaceted struggle to reintroduce one of the rarest animals on Earth in the face of cultural, economic, and biological challenges. Rosh, thanks so much for taking the time out to be on the show this afternoon um, and tell us a little bit about your film. So um, I actually got a chance to watch it last night and uh, it's absolutely fantastic, really, really enjoyed it. So just tell us a little bit about the film and um, and it's won a couple of awards. So uh, tell us about those as well. Sure,
1: yeah, thanks for having me on this. Um, so yeah, just the, the film basically is about the red wolf recovery program in North Carolina. So a lot of people are familiar with gray wolves, and I think Mexican gray wolves are starting to get coverage in the U.S. Um, But there's a third population of wolves, which is the red wolves of eastern North Carolina. And so it was actually the first predator to be reintroduced in the wild um, anywhere in the world. So it's this kind of landmark conservation program. And so the more I had done some research on this, it just seems like there wasn't much coverage on it. And it turns out as we started to make the film, uh, it became much more controversial because the state of North Carolina said that they wanted to declare the species extinct. And so suddenly it became you know, a, a much more uh, relevant film to get out as soon as possible and sort of engage audiences with what this animal is and and what can be done to protect it. Um, and so, yeah, actually, at uh, the International Wildlife Film Festival, uh, I guess a couple weeks ago, um, the film won Best Short and Best Conservation Award, which we were very excited to hear that. Um, you know, I, I think it's been an interesting ride making this film, and so to get you know some support from the film community is you know quite wonderful.
0: Now, you, uh, you're actually at MSU, Montana State University, at the moment, I believe. And I, I, you were just telling me before we came on air that uh, you are defending tomorrow. So uh, congratulations early for that. <laughs> it's always good to know that you're going to defend very soon. Um, tell us about the process of going to film school. I believe you were doing a master's in science and natural history filmmaking. Tell us a bit about that process and how that has kind of molded you or formed you as a filmmaker.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, So that's correct. I'm a student at Montana State University in the Science and Natural History Film Program. And one of the reasons I decided to go to the program was because I had been studying conservation biology and I had been working it with nonprofits out of DC, um, working with conservation issues. And it seemed like there was a lag in conservation science and the public's understanding of the science and so i kind of started looking around to how can i help communicate some of these very complicated but very important stories that depend on cultural acceptance of these species and these problems and and really adopting policy that will kind of chart the course of the future of many species and habitats and so i ended up finding this program in montana um, which I had never been to Montana. I was just kind of excited to go check out someone somewhere new in addition to the program, um, and it turns out that it's you know a really wonderful program that's geared towards exactly what I was hoping to do, which was to get science-minded people to think about storytelling and communicate the very complicated scientific realm um, into a palatable. Useful conversation for the general public, um, and so it shaped me in a lot of ways. First of all, to be able to, you know, leave um, a scientific community and enter an artistic community was, you know, important. It was an important step t- for me to to kind of step into that role. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, the the premise of me entering the program, and it's been wonderful to sort of have room to try out films and and see what works and what doesn't, and the topics I like to cover. Which I don't think I would have necessarily tried had I not stepped into grad school um, and given myself some space to, you know, have fun with film.
0: And do you find that having gone through um, a course like that, study course, has it honed your skills, do you think? Is it something that, and I'm really aiming this at people who uh, are potentially thinking of going down the route of um, of going into a, a study course, or uh, and at the same time, people who maybe are pushing that to the side and thinking, well, just going to, to get uh, an internship with a production company may be a better route, um, which... You know, do you do you think it's helped you hone your skills? You know, is there, what, what have you taken away that you perhaps wouldn't have got otherwise?
1: This program has offered a, an outlet for me to explore my own perspective. So rather than, you know, interning for a production company and learning how it works in the broadcast world or in independent film world, I kind of was able to see what kind of stories I liked and produce them the way that I wanted to produce them. And so... I don't know if I would have gained that had I not gone to grad school on the other hand. Um, I'm the first to say that, you know, these programs are really dependent on personalities and how people learn. Um, I think unlike a lot of fields, film has no real, uh, you know, progressive path in in terms of going from amateur to professional. And so for me, it was a good choice to be around scientists who wanted to learn how to communicate. Um, and I think for other people, if, if, You know, if you know you want to go into broadcast, for example, you know, maybe an internship to get right into it is a a great way to do it. Um, But like I said, for me, it gave me room to try out making my own films um, and allowed me to learn how to produce, direct, edit, you know, do all these different tasks that are necessary to make a coherent and hopefully good film.
0: Excellent. Of course, it's always good to know where you're going and what you want from it, which is makes those decisions far easier. Um now now you are I I've just looking on the website and you're listed on there as producer and director but I believe in the credits you do a whole bunch more uh in uh with Red Wolf Revival. Um I think you're on there as cinematographer just explain a little bit about your roles. Um and and I think here you know one of these one of the questions I get asked a lot is um you know how do I get into this certain niche of or niche of filmmaking whether it's a director or a producer. Um, but I find, certainly with the things, um, my projects, that I'm taking on many, many roles for many different projects. Um, how has that worked for you? Because I know you're listed on there as producer-director, but I-, I believe you did take on other roles. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Sure, um, and that's absolutely correct. I definitely took on um, plenty more roles than what's listed on the website. We kind of just kept it to producer and director to keep it simple. Um, but, yeah, this I mean, these kinds of projects – are labors of love and so i had come across this story and wanted to tell it and it it, and so multitasking became one of the best things that we could sort of incorporate into the way that we produce this film um so it was myself madison McClintock, who um, was a co-producer on it Um, and we kind of have described that as you know i'm in the driver's seat and she's sort of helping out with whatever needs to get done And then Susanna Smith, who helped with funding and kind of getting us going on the ground. Um, And she's the executive producer. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, basically uh, having this skill set of taking everything from pre-production all the way to distribution, um, we really wanted to be involved with every step. We knew we had a small team um, because the resources were pretty minimal. Um, And so um, it ended up splitting into several roles where mad madison and myself would um you know shoot during the uh during the production and she took on animations and i took on editing um and so we kind of split and sort of just divided and conquer until we made sure that everything got done so i would say to somebody that's you know looking at at how to get into it one of the best things for me was to learn a little bit about everything and and then from there hone what i like the most and and where I need help to help me get tasks done.
0: And it has a very specific style. I noticed that um, you use a lot of slow motion photography um, throughout it. And you, was that something that you guys kind of planned upon before you started shooting, or was that something that evolved during production?
1: Sure. Um, so that's a great question. I think for, for me, one of the important parts of this film was to convey – The beauty of this part of the country i think a lot of people visit eastern north carolina and they go to the outer banks um, which is a beautiful set of beaches along the atlantic shore Um, but this location where the red bulls live is 15 to 20 miles away from that and so we really wanted to showcase the beauty and so we we did what we could to sort of uh, highlight that region and we found that slow motion was a good way to sort of slow down the pace show people this you know, rural, quiet landscape, um, let, let people just have an opportunity to watch things. Um, so you're not shifting from shot to shot to shot, but instead having time to absorb, you know, whatever you're looking at, whether it's the swamps or the red wolves or, you know, anything else. And so that was a big part of it. The other more, maybe more, more practical end of it was, um, our time with captive red wolves was very limited. Um, they sleep most of the day and, They're almost never seen in the wild. And so if we were going to do a film about red wolves, we wanted to milk whatever footage we had to be able to use it um, so people had an opportunity to really feel like they got to learn about that animal. Um, And so we found slow motion to be one of the ways that we can give more time to the species with the limited resources we had to film them.
0: Uh, yeah and of course i was going to ask you the question about the uh the wolf footage you got some tremendous footage there of a red wolf uh, in slow motion and um some beautiful close-up shots and of course i was going to ask was it a captive wolf or, or were you lucky enough to you know spend uh many many weeks or months you know <laughs> out in the fields trying to find one to uh to get that close to but um tell us a bit about that that filming with that captive wolf
1: sure yeah so um one of the you know we, we spent some time thinking about, do we want to spend our time out in the field looking for red wolves, or do we want to spend time with people trying to tell um, tell or share with the audience some of the perspectives surrounding the red wolves and more of the cultural aspects, and we decided on the latter, given the controversies. Um, given their future. Um, and so because of that, we spent less time in the field. We did end up seeing one wolf in the wild, um, but it sort of was sitting in the middle of the road really far away. And by the time we even got set up, it was gone. Um, Though we even felt lucky just to watch it because um, we had talked to people who uh, had been working to protect red wolves for 10, 15 years and only seen them two or three times in their, in, in their career. So we knew yeah. that it was a very slim chance of seeing them. Um, so we had planned to film captive wolves. And part of the story is just the fact that uh, the captive breeding program feeds the wild population. So they actually take most of the red wolves that are in captivity and um, historically have taken their, uh, their pups and placed them into wild dens to basically get raised as wild pups. And so we felt like we needed to spend time with some of the captive breeding centers, um, some of who let us uh, film the red wolf. So it was actually a pretty great experience just to get to know the story better, to spend time with these captive uh, red wolf centers, which usually are zoos, I guess I should clarify.
0: Right, right. And I mean, excellent that you did get to see one in the wild because I believe in there in the movie you you say that there's only around 50, 50 left in the wild or 50 that are in the wild currently. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So when, when we made the film in November, the estimate was 50 to 75. And unfortunately now the number is 45 to 60. So even since we made the film, the number's gone down a little bit
0: wow yeah it's incredible and um you you'd mentioned um uh, when you were just talking about the film at the beginning that um Things change throughout production, and and uh, you were talking about how the storyline changed right uh, right kind of at the beginning as you were starting production. Um, th- this is one of those things that happens to absolutely everyone in the film industry. I think <laughs> right. you know, especially when you're filming wildlife. I mean, it's it's bound to change on you, um, and a lot of the time that can have a positive effect. It can it can enhance a story and uh, and bring out um, you know more facets to it that that really do improve upon your original kind of treatment if you like um, but also a lot of the time it can go the other way and be very detrimental to the end product just explain mm-hmm. a bit about one the, the 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 impact that that change had on your film but also um, other obstacles and challenges that you kind of faced throughout the filming process
1: sure um, so uh, like you summarized very well I think it's a problem that filmmakers face all the time and it I think it keeps keeps us activated and and paying attention to our surroundings, because I think without it, it would it'd almost be too simple to, to make a plan and film it and be done with it. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it's a great thing to keep you on your toes. Um, in this case, since the story became, you know, do people want this animal alive? And if the answer is no, this is the only wild population in the world, so we could be intentionally making something go extinct, which to my mind is just you know, very baffling um, that we'd even consider an option like that. Um, so it really made us think about what what the purpose of our film was. At one point, it was just to help people understand what's going on with this animal, what it's like to reintroduce a species um, and some of the consequences and benefits of doing that. And then it turned into, um, you know, one of the reasons we call it Red Wolf Revival is because it's about people trying to keep them on the landscape. It's less about the wolf itself, but more about sort of the cultural uh, landscape surrounding it. And so, yeah, it, it totally shifted where we thought the story was going to go. But I think all for the better, it gave us a lot more purpose um, and urgency and, you know, more motivation to kind of see it through. Um, the, the setback more than anything else was time. Um, when we set this, when we started this film, we were more ambitious with the type of footage we wanted to get. Um, Like we were saying earlier, it would have been nice to spend more time in the field and try to film them in the wild. Um, But because this film needed to be out as soon as we could get it out, um, it really cut cut back on our production time and post-production time because we thought it was more important that people interact with the story and get to know this animal than having the film that we had set out to make in our treatment. Um, so it made us made us pretty malleable, but I think it's better for it. It makes it a little bit more urgent, um, which is true to the situation. I mean, the, the reality is that they're trying to make a decision about the future of Red Wolves by the end of the summer. So our window to get the film out there and, and get people engaged is pretty small.
0: And what kind of impact do you think the film's going to have? Because I know it's for for a very kind of specific audience. Um, Tell us about your distribution plan for it and the impact that you're hoping it's going to have.
1: Sure. Um, So the film is, it's a short film, it's 24 minutes. Um, And one of the reasons we decided to keep it at that length was because we wanted to do these community screenings. Um, So rather than have the film available and hope that people watch it, um, we thought it would be better to take the film to people. So we organized screenings throughout North Carolina, um, basically with panels following the film, with landowners, with Fish and Wildlife Service, with conservation groups that are suing the Fish and Wildlife Service. So try to get a you know diverse uh, panel that, until some of these screenings, had never sat in the same room together. And so what we really hoped would happen was that we'd be able to create you know, a tempered and civil discourse that didn't exist before we made the film. It was very, you know, one side versus the other. Um, and, and so having a short film allowed us to do that a little bit more effectively um, rather than an hour and a half long film or an hour film and then a half hour discussion. It's reversed where people come to this film, hopefully learn um, a lot about the program, get to know the Red Wolf and then get to spend an hour talking to the people that are impacting the story. Um, so the audience has direct contact to the characters in the film, to the people who are making decisions and can really understand what to do next. Um, and then on top of that, we've worked with uh, Green Planet Films, which is an educational distributor um, who's helping us get it into universities and things like that. And so we do think that this the short length will be um, really helpful for us to get it into educational settings and, and people who are maybe ready to initially act um right after seeing it and so um let's see the other the third component i suppose we have is that we've partnered with the Association of Zoos and Aquarium so they are uh, each facility that's part of the captive breeding program so that's over 40 institutions across the country will have a copy of the film and they they're allowed to screen it however they want and so we're hoping that um You know, we actually did a screening at Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium in Tacoma last week um, and had a full house. They had to turn people away from uh, the theater, which was great um, that there was that much interest. And so hopefully those facilities can use it as an educational tool as well uh, to generate uh, conversation about the controversy. Um, Because one of the things that we found is that a lot of zoos aren't able to talk about the controversy because it's too political. But if they show the film, they're allowed to engage their audience in some of the realities on the ground. So we're at least able to provide that framework that people working with Red Wolves or otherwise don't have that agency.
0: And it's great to have a plan like that in place. It sounds like you were very specific when you were in pre-production that this film was going to be made for that kind of distribution. Um, Did that help you with funding? Did any of those organizations um, place funding with you to make the film? Um, Or did you go a different route for that?
1: Sure. So um, that was actually something that we had talked between the three of us who made the film um, to, to figure out how we were going to fund this and what was the best way to do it that wouldn't polarize the issue further. So we made a decision early on to take no money from a, a specific non, nonprofit organization to fund the film. We didn't want it to be, you know, a defenders of wildlife film and a Wildlands network film or a you know, center for biological diversity film, because we felt like if we branded it that way, it wouldn't bring everyone to the table with an open mind. Um, And so we ended up going to Kickstarter um, and we did most of our fundraising through Kickstarter, which helped in a lot of ways and helped us identify partners um, so that, you know, we could focus more on partnership for screenings rather than the production. So we certainly, you know, want to make it available for those organizations to use as as tools, but we don't want their influence in the way that we tell their story, because, for example, There's three lawsuits from uh, about seven different nonprofit organizations um, on the Fish and Wildlife Service. So we figured, (laughs) you know, if we partner with them, that limits our ability to talk to Fish and Wildlife with an open mind or their willingness to be a part of it. um, In the same way that, you know, some of them are more aggressive towards landowners and think that, you know, they need to totally shift their mind away from uh, their their current thoughts, but we kind of wanted to go into it with um, this idea that we wanted to tell their story and see what it was like to actually live with Red Wolves. Um, and so ultimately, we wanted to make sure that it was as open as possible. So it made it more difficult for funding, but at the same time, it helped us build a community so that by the time the film was done, we had people helping us make those connections or wanting to host screenings, and it actually saved us a lot of time in the end to do that. Um so sorry, yeah. that was a little bit of a ramble, but
0: No, 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 no that's again. fantastic No, no, r- rambling's good <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah, I mean, you definitely chose the harder, the harder uh, route there in terms of funding because yeah, I'm sure many of those organisations would have been happy to fund, but um, by tra- staying true to your goal and your mission of making um, an objective film um, is, you know, it, it's it's admirable to be able to do that, but it does make f- funding harder. And and you mentioned crowdfunding and uh, Kickstarter. Tell us a little bit about your process with that. You know, one of the questions I get asked an awful lot is about funding. Um, and crowdfunding now is one of the preferred methods for many, many indie filmmakers, um, <laughs> doc- documentary makers. Um, where were you when you started with your, your crowd sourcing or your crowdfunding? Did you have any backers kind of people that you could go to? Or did you start very much from scratch and have to build your audience throughout that campaign?
1: Sure. Yeah, we, we started from scratch for sure. Um, and so our approach to it, and I think one of the reasons we ended up getting, you know, the support we did was we approached it not as, Uh, here's this film we want to make. Let's ask all of our friends and family for, you know, the support. Certainly like we reached out to people that we thought might be interested, but the purpose of it more than anything else was to build that community. And so we approached organizations not as, Hey, can you post this? We, you know, need your support, but Hey, we're making this film. And we think, you know, you might be interested in seeing this get done and you know we're making this film from a perspective of a concerned citizen and so i think there's a lot of people that fall into that category um and so i think we were able to to sort of figure out who would want to support this film from the general audience more so than just our contacts um and yeah like i said that was kind of the goal from the beginning with the kickstarter campaign was not necessarily just get the funding. Of course, that was important, but, but to build that community. And so we treated it that way. Um, and so, yeah, we ended up, I guess we asked for, um, a little bit shy of 15,000 and it ended up with close to 18,000. So not a, you know, huge budget, but definitely plenty for us to get on the ground and, and make the film that we wanted to make.
0: Well, and of course, Filmmaking now has become a lot more accessible, a lot, a lot cheaper in many ways. Now the the gear, the um, you know, high quality gear is far more accessible and cheaper um, to to the general public, as a as opposed to the the larger cameras we were using twenty years ago that were costing <laughs> you know a hundred thousand dollars and uh, very inaccessible. So um, so well, that's fantastic. You are able to do that and beat your goal. Um, I mean, that's always nice to do and puts you in a place where you can relax a little bit and then think about the project at hand um speaking about you know funding and what you're raising the money for people always love to hear about gear especially when they've they've seen a film and they like the way it was shot you use a lot of slow-mo tell us a bit about the gear that you used for that shoot
1: sure so i actually have a sony fs700 um And so the previous film that i had made i I was able to save up to to get that camera um and so it's a great camera it's um basically uh i've had it for three or four years so i felt pretty comfortable with it and uh, we shot most of it actually in 4k because it that camera exports to 4k so we were able to shoot 240 frames a second raw Um, at 2k. Um, so basically all the captive footage we knew we could shoot also use that footage for stills, you know, production stills because the quality was so good. Um, and then we used an a7s. It's also a Sony camera, um, because we knew we'd want to film a little bit in evenings. Um, once it was a little darker because wolves were nocturnal and getting to hear them in the evening and filming some of the ecosystems in the evening would be something that was important. Um, but that was that was mostly it. It was pretty minimal in terms of gear. Um, we were able to make a lot of really good connections in the ground over there. For example, there's a organization called South Wings, um, and so they basically you you write them an email and say this is the environmental issue or story that I'm trying to tell. Whether you're a scientist or filmmaker or photographer. And they send it out to their network of volunteer pilots. And uh, eventually, you know, if somebody's interested, they'll they'll basically take you up and fly. Um, you know, sometimes they ask a little bit to chip in for gas. But, um, you know, so we were able to get free aerial footage by having that access, for example, which was great. Um, so we kind of just relied on, you know, keeping our crew small and our gear small so that we could... Be able to talk to people and not intimidate them, and and spend time on 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 setting up for shots, and instead being able to be present with some of those conversations um, that we had with people. So, yeah, like I said, basically the two cameras, the A7s and the FS700.
0: But and it's always great to hear when filmmakers are being resourceful because uh again it's one of those things that you know you watch movies you you hear about the gear that was used and and then that gear envy starts to happen where you just wish <laughs> you had a a red you know uh a red scarlet or a, um an Ari Alexa or, or all of these wonderful cameras but um you know, what I try and do is encourage filmmakers just to use what they they have at hand so that they can get out there and start building a story. When you first started shooting, what, what were you shooting on?
1: Sure, yeah, I was shooting on a Nikon D7000, so just a standard DSLR.
0: And do you think by by just using the camera you had rather than you know going out and spending lots of money trying to assimilate something else was uh, useful for you in those beginning stages?
1: Absolutely Um, and kind of the I think the simplicity of some of those cameras makes you become really good at them and so by the time you're ready to move on to something more complicated you know what you're looking for in a camera uh, I'm convinced that there's no perfect camera, so, um, you know, it just depends on what the shoot calls for. And so having those basics allows you to move to whatever camera pretty easily. Um, you know, if, if I'm jumping onto a RED, I know the basics of what I'm interested in and what kinds of questions I would have to be able to navigate it very quickly. Um, and so now moving to any camera is, is for the most part, pretty straightforward. Uh, sometimes just getting to know new menus but that's kind of the extent of it Um, so yeah hugely valuable to just keep it simple and learn um, as much as i could on one camera Um, and i will actually say i was on a shoot recently where um, we did some underwater work and i bought a 90 dollar you know underwater case for my iphone and it worked just as well as every other camera we used on the shoot for for certain shots i was able to place it in mangrove roots basically underwater and do these great time lapses underwater um, with, you know, a, a camera that wasn't even bought as a camera.
0: So Yeah, I mean, that, that's the amazing times that we're in where we re- l- literally can film from anything we have in our pocket these days. And we're very, yeah. very lucky to be in a generation like that. And, and now, really, there's nothing holding us back from doing our storytelling, which, which is incredible. <laughs> um, now, speaking of storytelling, this isn't the first story that you've told. I know that you have award, other award-winning um, films out. Um, tell us a bit more about those.
1: Sure. So this is kind of the second film that I've made and kind of submitted to festivals. The previous one that I had made was called Pride, um, and it's about Asiatic lions in uh, western India. And so that film, I think, uh, let's see, that was 2013 I made that film. Uh, And it's a similar style, actually, to Red Wolf Revival, where it's much more conversational in tone. Um, One of the best compliments I got maybe – I, it wasn't meant this way, but uh, feedback I got from a festival judge had told me that it was, uh, you know, it, was, it didn't end up winning an award because they thought it was too slow. And uh, for me, that was kind of a nice compliment because lions in this part of the world, one of the reasons they they're thriving, so it's basically a conservation success story where they went from 14 or 15 individuals to now over 700. Um, and so. You know they're doing really well, and part of that is because they don't uh, make the lion dramatic. So they live beside it, and they don't think anything of it. And so I wanted to depict to, to depict this species as one that, if I showed it to anyone in Western India, they'd be like, "Yep, that's where I live, and that's the animal that I know." Not one that was built up so much that they were like, "Well, they look big and scary," and <laughs> you know, then they watch it, and it's like, "Oh no, it turns out." That's not really what they're like, so trying to keep my my idea of what an animal is in check was important. Um, but yeah, in in a lot of festivals, it did really well. Um, you know, it was nominated as a newcomer at Wild Screen a couple years ago, and at the Jackson Science Media Awards, and actually won best short at the International Wildlife Film Festival a couple years ago. Um, so yeah, had really great success with that, and and I think um, you know one of the one of the, my takeaways was that there's there's lots of new stories to be told out there, um, and just spending time with people was a good approach to it, um, and that's kind of what I carried to Red Bull Revival as well, was you know, not necessarily making the blue chip film, but making the film that um, someone that lives in that area might watch and be like, okay, this is a place that I need to care more about or become engaged in, um, and so... Like you mentioned earlier, it's a very specific audience, but hopefully it resonates beyond that.
0: Well, and of course, we we can't please everyone with our style (laughs) of filmmaking, right? And um, I think it's good to set out with a plan to be very specific on the style that you want to film. Obviously, if you're self-funding or you're raising your own funds, then you have that ability, which is fantastic. Whereas if uh, it's for a network and they want a specific style, then uh, you're going to be kind of held to that. But, um, you know, how important is that for you having that control going into the future with uh, films that you're going to be producing? You, You know, how much is that control important to you?
1: Sure. Well, I think for me, it's about the target audience. Um, and in this case, since the story became so much about the controversy, I knew that the purpose of the film shifted into being about generating a thoughtful conversation that could actually lead towards the protection of the species. So that kind of great guided all of the creative choices um, in the way. That we told the story, who was saying, um, you know, what information, and um, you know how long the film was, how we wanted to distribute it, um, and I think that in the future, just I mean, it it'll depend on the project, but um, you know, keeping the audience in mind is really going to shape it. So in this case, it was important to hold on to that vision. Um, I think if we made this film, you know, before any of the 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 kinks were thrown in. I think it might have been more palatable as a, as a broadcast, you know, one hour episode about Red Wolves. And we, that would have been a totally different film. Um, But, you know, so I think it just kind of, if, if I can clarify my audience before I go into a film, that kind of determines the level of creativity I'm willing to give up or um, how, how important it is to be flexible
0: well and i think it's great that you you took the um the person's opinion of it being too slow with your your previous film uh you took that as a a positive because um you know it can be pretty tough when you start uh putting all your films into these festivals and getting them turned down or uh not winning awards you know I, i think it can put a lot of people off and i think it's very important to Um, understand that there's a judging process people are looking for different things your film might not fit that category as well as something else you know that's going to be different every time every year different judges different films that you're up against um you know it's it's a process not to be put off by because at the end of the day you can put a film in and win lots of awards um you have done with both of your films now um you know uh, how how are you going to look at festivals in the future when you put films in, and you may not win something? I mean, you've you've won lots of awards. Uh, is there an expectation now?
1: Sure, that's a great question. I think um, in in some senses, I, what the way I look at festivals is, I I divide the purpose of the film into several categories, and so you know, there's the like I was just saying, the target audience drives the the storytelling for me. Um, and the personal benefit of festivals is to develop my professional career. So that helps me, um, you know, understand if the films I'm making are, uh, you know, relevant to the industry that I'm, I'm a part of. Um, but I don't judge success on the film itself based on how it does in the festivals. Um, for example, you know, this film, you know, is likely not going to win, you know, a best of festival type type of category because there's so many great films that I think will, you know, outperform on cinematography, on uh, you know, reaching you know a, a broad audience or you know have that have that timeless you know resonance where this film is, you know, we targeted residents in North Carolina and it's a short film that's meant to generate a conversation. So actually at festivals, screening it feels very strange because it isn't followed by a panel. And so it feels almost like an incomplete process. Um, so I certainly value the festival experience, but I, I, my takeaway is that festivals are more for my personal development rather than the indicator of the film itself. Um, I'd be much happier um, to have this film screen all the time throughout Eastern North Carolina than win any awards. It's obviously a great benefit that it does also win awards. Um, but separating that kind of helps me sort of understand what I'm trying to get out of a festival versus what I'm trying to get out of the purpose of why I made the film. Um,
0: well, and, yeah. and there's a great point there. You, you you felt it wasn't good enough to win Best of Festival or, um, you know, possibly any awards, but it won two awards uh, at this particular festival. So that's fantastic. I mean, that's an inspiration, I think, to other people who may have the same feeling about their style of film. Um, I know I've put short films in. I, I've had many films rejected. Um, and it, it, as a, an established filmmaker, it's still hard to, you know, you know, you're like, they didn't take that one. Why didn't they take that one? You know. I thought that would be the one, and then other ones that uh, that get taken up and and uh, you know uh, and do well. So, um, again, congratulations on those. Uh, just one last question for you, sure. um, in terms of inspiration and keeping you going as a storyteller um, in the uncertain future that is independent filmmaking what advice do you have for people who are either just breaking into it or or just um, you know established filmmakers who are trying to keep going you know it's, it's tough times tough to raise funds to do these things what inspires you to keep going
1: That's a great question. (laughs) And there's a lot of different ways to take it. But I think for me, one of the the inspirations is is recognizing how lucky I am to get to to pursue this field. Uh, It's very easy to get bogged down in fundraising and, you know, uh, getting access to the types of stories you want to tell, or the number, you know, number of hours you spend, you know, getting mosquito bites in the field and things like that. But at the end of the day, you get to pursue creativity, which is a very lucky thing to get to do. Um, and so I guess, you know, part of that is coming from an immigrant family where I'm almost immediately aware of, you know, risks my family took to get to this country and give me an opportunity. So it's, you know, it's funny. I talked to my dad and he's very confused about what my career is because he's like, wait, who's employing you? And what's, (laughs) you know, what's your job? And, you know, and, and it's a, it's a hard question. And so, um, I think on some level, while it's confusing to him, he's very excited about the fact that I get to pursue something like this where you know, it is a risk and it is um, a challenge to tell the story you want to and have the resources to do it. But like I said, I think just being aware of the gifts you have to tell a story is, is inspiration to keep going and, and do a good job with it.
0: Well, yeah, that's a great answer. And um, yeah, I think we've all been there and had, that, uh, had the, the family ask us when we're going to go out and get a real <laughs> job. <laughs> we, we've right. all been there. So. <laughs> well, Rosh, thanks so much for taking your time out of your day today to uh, come on the show and tell us a bit about your film and your history and, uh, and where you're moving on to. Um, it's inspirational, and uh, I think our listeners will find it very, very useful indeed and valuable. So again, thank you, and um, good luck with the future.
1: Well, thank you very much. It was exciting to get to do this.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com, where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening.